0: Welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Michael Swain, Senior Research Fellow at the Quincy Institute's East Asia program, and one of the deepest China scholars in the policy community, for my money anyways. Michael, welcome back to the show.
1: Thanks, John. I'm really a pleasure to be here.
0: I want to start by asking you about Chinese attempts to mediate negotiations in the Ukraine war. What do you think Beijing is is trying to do and, and how should Washington manage those developments.
1: Well, I think Beijing is primarily seeking to uh appeal to some Europeans, Asians and by and large the global south to show that it really is uh, desirous of trying to establish some kind of or support the negotiated resolution of the Ukraine war. Um I don't think this message is aimed at the US Nor its closest allies. I don't think China believes that it's going to convince the United States that that it that it really seeks to have some kind of um, peaceful resolution, or that it that it wants to take a position that's not entirely supportive of Russia. But nonetheless, I think China wants to um, reinforce the idea that it is unthreatening, that it's a peacemaker um, along the lines of the of the Saudi Arabian Iranian uh, recent agreement. Um, that it's a moderate power. Um, and uh, so I think it appeals to the sentiment in many places on the Ukraine issue that both sides have some significant blame in bringing about the war, even though Russia obviously was the aggressor, um, and that China wants to appeal to those sentiments um, and, and by doing so uh, reinforce its position in many places around the world. Uh, it wants to reduce suspicion, in other words, and the hostility towards itself among those countries beyond the U.S. or its closest allies. And doing this, it wants to avert a broad coalition from emerging that would treat China in the same way as as the West and the United States is now treating Russia. So it's a it's a broader strategic calculation here, um, in, in influencing others. Now. I mean, the U.S. response to this is is basically enormous suspicion and discounting that China really would play a role as a um, I don't want to say fully neutral, but as a a genuine uh, moder- a mediator in in trying to uh, resolve the Ukraine conflict, or that it would do anything other than then try to sort of reduce um, pressure on itself um, or that it would do anything to undermine Russia. Um, there still is a very strong view within the United States that China's interests on the Ukraine war are pretty closely aligned with that of Russia, even though it doesn't endorse the invasion or the actual, uh, you know, all of the carnage that's now going on in in Ukraine. So as, as far as what's to do about it, I mean, I don't think the United States is in a position to really try to follow up on China's recent statement of its 12-point position on the Ukraine war, uh, to try to encourage China to play a more active role, certainly not as a mediator. Um, It it just wants primarily to prevent China from providing substantive military aid to Russia. And in that regard, uh, that seems to be the case, that China has not been doing that. Uh, and as long as China doesn't do that um, and doesn't, you know, help Russia in some substantive ways to avoid sanctions, um, then I think the United States is reasonably um, happy that the, that the Chinese are not, you know, really damaging the situation.
0: Right. There are some subtleties to the Biden administration's approach to China. I think so. They, as you, you mentioned, that Iran Saudi china broker deal Um, the administration did not have the worst of reactions to that it was it was uh um somewhat uh praiseworthy or at least they acknowledged that uh, china was in a position to do that and we weren't Um, national security advisor jake sullivan recently met with his chinese counterpart and praised that diplomacy and you know they had some discussions on ukraine but yet at the same time you said you know we still have a kind of Tough approach, trying to squeeze China through economic warfare of various sorts, and showing no signs of budging from a kind of primacist strategy. Can you talk a bit about the nuances there in in, in the administration's approach to China?
1: Well, yeah, I mean there certainly are nuances there. I would I would call them in some ways contradictions. Um, You know, the United States has now made several speeches. Uh, Blinken made a speech. Um, Jake Sullivan has made a speech. There's been other speeches made by Treasury Secretary Yellen and Raimondo, um, all laying out the U.S. approach to China. Um, But but in them, there there is kind of a there is there is what I see as a tension. Um, When you hear Blinken talk about China, he talks about the three main uh, pillars of U.S.-China policy. Invest, align, compete. Um, there's no, uh, collaboration in there. Uh, there's no real, uh, sense that the United States is seeking constructive, positive, um, relations or more constructive, uh, relations with, with China. Um, he, he does say, you know, the U.S. and China will work together where our interests can can allow it. Uh, we're not going to let disagreements stop us from moving forward on, on important priorities. But then you hear from U.S. officials, I've heard from U.S. officials, that, you know, progress is really not the objective. The objective is stabilizing the relationship. Uh, the objective is just establishing guardrails, avoiding the worst case. Uh, keeping the lines of communication open, but not a whole lot of optimism about moving forward and and building relations and and getting things done in, in a in a positive way on a range of issues. And yet, you have people like Yellen and and uh, and others saying, you know, we've got to do that. We have to be able to really engage meaningfully with the Chinese in the economic and financial area as well as a lot of other areas where we have really strong uh, common interests um, dealing with pandemics, you know, climate, c- nuclear proliferation, the illicit narcotics, you know, the global economy, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there are all these areas where there is a common interest and in U.S., China really have to work together in a substantive, meaningful way. But, you know, the the actual dynamics on the ground, what you're seeing actually happening or not happening, I should say, in the relationship, doesn't seem to bear that out, that there is a real commitment to try to establish some kind of uh, greater degree of um, understanding between the two sides uh, by establishing some kind of middle ground on a lot of the issues of contention between the two sides. There's still a lot of finger-pointing that's going on. Uh, China needs to be a more fair uh, competitor stop threatening and bullying other countries, you know, basically clean up its act. And 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 then we can maybe talk about moving forward with no sense by the United States that it might be contributing in some way towards the kind of behavior that it sees in in China. There's there's no sort of recognition that there's an interactive dynamic going on. And I should say the Chinese have the same problem. I mean, the Chinese look at the United States and point their finger and say, well, you guys are trying to contain and undermine and weaken us, if not overthrow us. Um, you're eroding your one China policy. You're doing all kinds of things vis-a-vis Taiwan. You're doing all kinds of things that are really threatening. You need to stop that. You know. So if you stop that, things will be better. So each side is doing this uh, with no recognition that each side is contributing actually to a larger dynamic <laughs> that – Is just sort of bringing, you know, sliding us towards more and more of the kind of hostility that we've seen recently.
0: You recently co authored a report with Andrew Basevich on the restraint approach to China. Before we dive into the core arguments of the paper, I want to kind of set the context by pulling this quote and, and asking you to expand. So you write The United States, as the dominant military and economic power on the planet, has developed and maintained the dangerous notion. That only American global primacy and leadership can keep the world peaceful and ensure prosperity. You're talking about perhaps the most commonly held view in, in DC national security circles. Uh, most policymakers don't think it's dangerous; they think it's great and, and necessary. Um, can you talk a bit about this idea and how it manifests with respect to China policy?
1: I think the United States has, at least since the Second World War, believed that the best way to preserve order, stability and encourage prosperity in the world is for there to be a single dominant power uh, in the main regions of the world that can serve as a kind of um, uh, security guarantor uh, providing what joseph nye used to call the essential oxygen for conducting normal relations among states and the oxygen being security um, that the united states is the benign security actor that that really can allow other countries to uh, not engage in arms racing, uh, not feel insecure uh, and go about their own business and you know, develop economically etc i mean the the problem with this concept is that it's not it's not so benign um, the search for primacy um, which can Many American officials don't define this. Many American officials don't say yeah, we want primacy. What they'll say is We're, we want to be the leader, and we want freedom of action in order to defend our interests. But in in translation, that does really amount to a search for for levels of of, of primacy. But here, the problem is that it doesn't adequately recognize that. In order to maintain stability and avoid security dilemmas, that is to say, avoiding other countries being alarmed by American primacy and seeking to balance against it, um, the United States has to be very open to and actively engaged in um, arriving at diplomatic understandings based on some level of compromise in the search for middle ground, and be involved in credible reassurances that the U.S. has not dedicated to destroying or severely weakening other powers, particularly major powers that might be different or differ from the United States. So without those sorts of reassurances, the search for military primacy just feeds security competition, as I say, and arms racing, and worst case assessments. Now, this is especially the case when it's directed at other strong powers, and China is the primary candidate here. China is a rising power, as we've been saying for decades. Um, China has an increasingly potent military. China, by its position in the world, does challenge, if not deliberately, then indirectly, America's ability to exercise predominance. And that creates insecurity in the United States and leads the United States to double down on its efforts to try and retain or sustain that predominance. And so you have You know, a a worsening security dilemma, which has now really become a more full-blown security competition between the US and China. Now, I don't want to put all the blame here on the United States. It's not all simply because the United States wants to be a a primacy power. China itself has deep suspicions towards the United States, some of which I think are excessive and irrational. Um, They're driven in part by ideology, um, they're driven by historical grievance and the inability to get beyond that historical grievance. But um, so you, China does contribute to this as well. But nonetheless, the, the U.S. effort to try to sustain a level of primacy, particularly in China's backyard, particularly right near China, right up to its almost up to its 12 mile limit, <laughs> territorial limit, um, that is, is what creates an enormous amount of tension an enormous amount of friction between the two countries. And it's most clearly being played out in the Taiwan uh, situation where the United States wants to have enough power along China's maritime periphery, which is where Taiwan is, less than 100 miles off China's coast. Um, it wants to have, the US wants to have such a level of freedom of action of there there, and, and defend, uh, be able to defend Taiwan that it it creates um, it creates greater and greater suspicion and hostility on the part of China uh, particularly when in in trying to do this the United States undermines the one China policy that has stood as the bulwark along with China's uh, adherence to peaceful unification the bulwark of stability um, along in in the Western Pacific so Primacy leads to a lot of problems, and it needs to be really the United States. Another, another problem is the United States needs to recognize that under current conditions, it's simply not able to sustain the level of primacy that it would want, particularly along China's periphery. The, the Chinese are continuing to grow, acquire resources, and now they are in a position militarily in the Western Pacific that's roughly equal to the United States. And I don't see that changing significantly. That is, I don't see the United States reasserting or regaining the level of military primacy that it enjoyed for 70 years in the Western Pacific. It needs to recognize that in that part of the world at least, um, it no longer can enjoy that level of dominance. And so it has to adjust to that in a meaningful way, in a substantive way, that doesn't mean you know, doubling down on military spending uh, and, and, and in this vain effort to try to reestablish that level of primacy, it has to be some alternative strategy that would uh, better serve U.S. interests and reflect reality.
0: There's a point in the paper where you do a great service and provide what I think is missing f- from a lot of work uh, on China, and that's specificity about what the nature of the threat is. Um, And as you and Basevich see it, um, the threat to U.S. interests fall essentially into three baskets. One, uh, risk of security clashes, you know, conflicts. Um, The second is the possibility of China eroding U.S. economic growth rates and U.S. competitiveness. So uh, essentially outcompeting us in the economic and technological domains. And then the third is norms and and the rule of law. Now um you do say that quote contrary to the prevailing mindset in washington china does not pose an existential or near existential threat to the united states in these areas but but let's drill down on on each of these because they they deserve some explanation just try to characterize the the nature of the chinese threat in each of these areas
1: well in in the in the security area it's it's largely bound up with what i've just been talking about which is which is the Taiwan situation, um, China's ability to acquire uh, the capacity to threaten Taiwan and at some point possibly seize Taiwan, uh, either by blockade or by direct assault, um, that is a clear challenge uh, from the U.S. perspective to the ability of the United States to preserve security. In the Taiwan Strait by being able to effectively uh, defend Taiwan or have Taiwan itself acquire the means to uh, to defend itself with some U.S. assistance, of course. So the the very growth of Chinese security um, is is uh, military capabilities is a challenge to that presumption on the part of the United States and its policy towards Taiwan, and it also China's military buildup in the Western Pacific also of course puts other countries um, at unease because um, China has territorial disputes with several uh, countries in the area with Japan with countries in Southeast Asia over the South China Sea uh, land features and waters um, and with with Korea um, so so it and of course, with, with India uh, along their in, in, internal border, and all of this creates un, you know, uncertainty uh, about what China is going to do with its growing military power. But all of these issues, I think, um, need to be understood in the context of, of a, a search for, by China to defend what it regards as its sovereign claims, its claims for sovereignty. Um, And you can say that these are justifiable or not, but they are related to Chinese perceptions of territorial sovereignty. And they don't relate to a larger strategic um, viewpoint by the Chinese that we must have predominant military power ourselves just in general to ensure our security. Therefore, we must be the dominant military power in the Western Pacific and beyond. that is a contingent goal that I don't believe the Chinese currently possess, that they think they can achieve that that, that objective. Uh, what they're looking for, I believe, is a level of assurance and a level of balance uh, and a level of relative um, leverage so that they cannot be threatened uh, on their most vital interests, which include these, these sovereignty disputes and these sovereignty areas. So, it's, it's a much less clear cut level of security threat beyond these sovereignty issues than many people in Washington assume. Uh, and, and much of it does depend upon what the United States does and says vis a vis China in the security realm as to how far China might go in trying to achieve its own level of security predominance, if you will, of security leverage. Um, and with regard to the sovereignty issues, uh, on the security side, um, they're all to some degree negotiable. You can negotiate a modus vivendi that at least averts conflict, if not resolves the problem. China has resolved many of its sovereignty disputes in the past with its neighbors and has done, throw peace, done so peacefully. And in some cases, with agreements that don't particularly well I mean they're not the other side seems to have gotten a better agreement than the chinese side but the chinese saw the incentive to reach an agreement so you can negotiate understandings with the chinese in some of these areas not in ways that are going to lead them to give up their claim in I think in these current sovereignty disputes but in in ways that allow you to put it lower down um, in the in in the environment or on the on the list of potential threats, you can you can put it on the back burner, and we need to do that. Most importantly, with Taiwan, and I think we can do that. Um, so it's it's a much less clear cut, and it's a much more, if you will, susceptible to negotiation set of issues involving uh, security for the for China. Um, than many many people in Washington tend to assume. I think. Now on the economic front, China obviously has a major. I mean, it's a, it's a it's a major player in the trade arena for sure. I mean, it, it is the major trading partner of the majority of countries in the world. It has a huge profile internationally. is deeply involved in both trade and increasingly in investment and in aid, uh, and also deeply involved in technology and technological development. It is now becoming a leading technological player in many different areas. Now, this is a two-sided kind of issue for the United States. It is not what many people claim, oh, well, all this, what this shows is China is a predatory economic power out to um overturn the, the rules-based order in the economic realm, establish a totally sinocentric economic system in the world, uh, and will therefore, you know, weaken and, and impoverish the West and the United States. I and mean, this is a cartoon. This is a a significant distortion of the reality. And the reality is that China in many ways benefits large numbers of countries through its economic intercourse with them. Um, There's no question about this. And for the United States or other countries to pretend otherwise just flies in the face of the reality. China does benefit the economic fortunes of other countries. The World Bank estimates that China contributes about one third to global growth. (laughs) This doesn't occur through predatory economics. It occurs because there are mutual interests being served. Uh, and, the, and the Chinese do, do that. They're not altruistic. They're doing this because it advances their own economic benefits, but it does so by benefiting that of other countries as well. So we need to have a recognition of that fact. But the second aspect to this, of course, is that China also engages in economic behavior in various ways that, that do um, cause concern, um, that are based upon, in some cases, not a a reliance as much as it should be on free market um, mechanisms, that China does provide a lot of state support for its economic enterprises. Um, It does um, apply a lot of finance around the world in ways that don't always benefit the recipient countries involved. I don't think this is because there's a deliberate effort at what's called debt-trap diplomacy on the part of China to bring other countries into debt and get them to default and then be able to seize assets in in foreign countries, I mean, this is yet another cartoon. Um, The reality is that the Chinese are seeking to add to the development of other countries and by doing so, they're benefiting themselves, their financial institutions, their banks, and they're also increasing their influence, yes, politically and otherwise, in these countries. So they seek to do that. But at the same time, the Chinese make a lot of mistakes uh, in doing this. They're not good at feasibility studies. Uh, The countries they're lending money to, in many cases, aren't good at feasibility studies. They both get locked into situations where there's excessive debt. And Chinese banks don't want their their debtors to go into bankruptcy. They don't want them to default on loans. Um, But nonetheless, you have this kind of uh, danger in some cases. And uh, that fuels concerns, uncertainties, and it really cries out for a a more reliable system of development assistance by by China and cooperation with with the West in doing this, where the West has had certain uh, experience in doing this. Now, the, the Chinese set up the Asia Investment Bank, Infrastructure Investment Bank, to try to Facilitate and and make more regular, uh, normalize, if you will, some of the loans that that are given to various uh, projects around the world. And this has indeed evolved in a in a positive direction. It has a, a acquired norms and approaches that are um, that are more reliable, more solid, uh, more professional um, over time with a board that is not dominated just by the Chinese. Uh, so, that, that kind of general approach needs to be broadened and expanded. So, you, again, you have a mixed bag in the economic area um, where the Chinese need to, if you will, clean up their act in some ways, put things on a more level playing field, um, d- 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 conduct economic practices in, in ways that are more reliable and professional. Uh, it's a learning process. Um, there also needs to be some pushback on the part of other powers to try to get the Chinese to recognize some of these deficiencies. So it, it's a mixed bag, but at the same time retain the benefits. So you you have you have that. So it's again the threat, the concern is there, but it's almost routinely inflated and overblown and distorted. And the resolution requires a more sophisticated set of policies that balances. Um, between both um, resisting Chinese actions in certain areas and encouraging them in other areas and reaching some kind of modus vivendi or cooperation in yet other areas. Um, the final area, which is norms and human rights and all, is is something that is is very much um, subject of discussions, particularly in the United States. Um, and there's really sort of two issues here. One is is the Chinese threat to the so-called rules-based order uh, and and the the broad global norms that that are part of that order? And then the other one is the more specific, narrower issue of Chinese human rights and the violation of human rights. Um, in both of these areas, again, the reality needs to really be brought to the fore here, and and the desire to avoid the sort of cartoonish conclusions, uh, hopefully, should be. Should be there, but um, I think in the former case, it's it's a big and complex issue, John. The rules-based order, but I don't believe uh, there's a there's a real difference of opinion as to a whether a rules-based order exists as a single coherent entity, and b if it does, what it is. Um, I don't think there is a single what you would call rules-based order that encompasses all the different areas where states interact and establish norms. Um, The United States tends to want to define this rules-based order based on its own interests and those of its closest allies. So it will define them in terms of democracy, uh, recognition for democracy, uh, international law, and free markets, Uh, recognition of international law, free markets. Now, democracy is a particular political norm um, one that the West, of course, prizes very highly. It is not recognized um, in the same way and to the same degree by many, many, many other countries around the world. Um, yet those countries are not necessarily implacable enemies of the United States. They have their own political systems. They are various degrees of democracy. Um, so you can't simply say that, oh, the, the rules-based order consists of a, a common desire to uphold democracy. Um, not true. Uh, there is a mixed set of political systems across the world and and the and the rule and the order, the global order, you know has to include many of those political systems and you have to be able to engage with these countries in productive ways. So you can't just simply define people as in or out of a de- democratic order. so that's one that's one uh, problem. the second and which has to be addressed with a more sophisticated policy the second is is the whole issue of, of um, free market. There, of course, uh, there's a huge amount of uh, misdefinition and misinterpretation. Free markets exist uh, across most of the world in varying degrees. Uh, States have both state-controlled parts of their economies. They influence their economies through state uh, policies. The United States does that. Um, It provides subsidies. Um, it, it conducts um, economic behavior that is very politically motivated. Uh, sanctions that the United States meets out with, with a huge amount of uh, uh, you know, activity on, uh, in, in applying sanctions around the world uh, is for political purposes to a great extent. Um, so th- there, there is a range of, of recognition and adherence to free market principles and, and so you can't simply say it's either free markets or not free markets. They're mixed economies. We're all mixed economies. Uh, the Chinese tend to be more emphasizing state-directed. As Secretary Yellen, Treasury Secretary Yellen recently said, the Chinese rely more than most states, most likely, on state direction of their economy, more than they used to in earlier periods of the reform, uh, more under Xi Jinping today. Um, and this is distorting in some ways of the global economy. And so there, this is something where there needs to be um, a clear recognition about where the boundaries are. And the international community really hasn't done that. Um, the, the World Trade Organization doesn't effectively define this issue of state involvement in the economy as much as it probably should. And there should be further discussion and debate about this. Uh, and recognition that all states are engaged in some level of state direction of their economies. And we're moving increasingly in the United States, by the way, in that direction, as we see, as we have a greater movement towards protectionism, greater movement towards what you call industrial policies in the United States. And that calls out even more so for some degree of engagement with the Chinese to try to understand where the limits are here. And what is a level playing field? How do you establish that clearly? That's an important thing, but it's it's a process that's open to and should be subject to negotiation, uh, not one where you have a fiat, okay, you're against free market, you're just in favor of subsidization, uh, you're engaged in predatory economics. I mean, all these things, again, cartoons. Um, on the human rights side, it's a much more difficult issue um, to come to grips with, of course. There are universal principles for human rights um, the Chinese have signed on to these. Uh, the Chinese violate them. Uh, they violate them considerably domestically. They've certainly done so in Xinjiang. Um, they've also done so vis-à-vis um, the Tibetan community within within China. And and of course, the political rights of many of the Chi- of the Chinese population are restrained under one-party dictatorship. And uh, an increasingly Leninist-style one-party dictatorship under Xi Jinping, which I do not think serves the interests of the Chinese people. Uh, I think China, in that regard, is headed in the wrong direction. And increasing levels of party control throughout the economy, throughout society, and and in in individual rights is is not uh, compatible, in my view, with a 21st-century um, important state in the world that needs to be sophisticated, needs to be innovative, needs to be interactive, deeply interactive with the the global community, and in a more sort of open-minded way. And China is not doing that. China is moving in the opposite direction under Xi Jinping. And I think that's a a big mistake. But the United States has real limits in how it can affect this process within China. Uh, The United States cannot coerce, convince, persuade the Chinese leadership to recognize human rights or, or to lessen their controls within the country by doubling down on sanctions of China, sanctioning Chinese officials, um, putting pressure on them through economic means in, in various ways. These types of actions have very, very limited utility, if any utility at all. Um, they feel good. Um, it, it looks good. Um, it, there's a very poor record that it actually affects uh, Chinese behavior in positive directions. And indeed, if excessively done, it can, in fact, undermine the arguments of those people within China who are arguing for more moderate policies by the Chinese government. Um, and I shouldn't say arguing, they're not doing so openly, but they, there's a lot of unease among particularly the intellectual class in China with Xi Jinping's policies. And I think there is a latent degree of resistance to his policies, but you don't serve that resistance by doubling down on pressure against China in a variety of areas that looks like it's not just designed to defend human rights. It looks like it's designed to weaken China and weaken China's government. So the United States needs to be very cautious about what it can and cannot do. It certainly needs to speak out in favor of human rights against uh, political repression um, but it also needs to be very realistic about how far it can go in influencing chinese behavior and ps uh, to be influential the united states needs to live up to these values and these norms itself internally domestically and we have not been doing a good job in that regard in recent years and we need to do a much better job in that in that regard because we can't be finger pointing at everybody else while we're abusing our own population in certain ways. So, you know, again it's it's a mixed bag and it's one where the United States needs to recognize its limits while trying to maintain its its leverage and and its influence in various ways.
0: Well, that was very thorough and uh, balanced in in describing uh, what we faced, you know, and then it seems when I talk to you that you know these are there are concerns, there are problems to be managed. But the five alarm fire causing people to recommend billions and hundreds of billions more in defense spending to head off this existential threat, that's a common depiction uh, in the discourse, and it doesn't seem to be true. And something that you've mentioned sort of has been reflected in your analysis throughout is that one of the mistakes a lot of analysts make is seeing China's approach as being kind of fixed in a determined strategy, it's already set, rather than something that's a developing variable that changes and responds to US policy. And and many strategists don't seem to uh, be treating it that way. Um, But now that we've sort of gone through all those threats and challenges, um, I want to talk to you about sort of military posture. Um, Can you compare the approach of maintaining alliances and forward posture with reducing or ending them as part of an offshore balancing approach. You explore both of these options in the paper. Um, You end up recommending uh, quote, the deployment of a less provocative, more affordable, defensively oriented U.S. regional force posture. What does that look like and how does it contrast with the offshore balancing approach?
1: Well, the the force posture that we we uh, describe in the, in the paper that Andy Basevich and I wrote, and is 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 basically the the force posture that was laid out in some detail in an earlier Quincy uh, report, um, quite substantial report um, called active denial, um, and it's a force posture that has several different important components to it, um, and the first and foremost. Is that it? It reduces the propensity for the United States to rely on um, early offensive uh, attacks against China in the event of a conflict over Taiwan or some other top, uh, some other um, um, issue in, in in the Western Pacific. Um, it is a orientation that is. More focused on interdicting uh, Chinese forces offshore, uh, particularly naval and air forces, um, in, in, for example, trying to cross the Taiwan Strait, uh, in a in a conflict over Taiwan, and it it relies on um, resilience of uh, U.S. and allied uh, assets uh, near China. That is to say, their ability to resist attack, missile attack and air attack. And these would be in bases in Japan, for example, or possibly in the future in the Philippines again, um, or on Guam. Um, These are all the staging areas for US response to any kind of Chinese attack on Taiwan. So you need to have resilience. You need to have hardening of these bases and the ability to resist these kinds of attacks. And not enough of that is being done uh, you need to have some degree of better dispersal of your capabilities so that you're not concentrated too much in one place. You need to reduce um, the cost of losses of certain kinds. And here, for example, um, we argue in favor of acquisition of smaller aircraft carriers rather than these gigantic carriers, the one that's currently uh, stationed in in Japan, um, that Um, To have a larger number of smaller carriers makes greater sense um, in terms of the risks involved. Of course, most of those carriers should not operate close into China anyway, because China's ability to target carriers has increased remarkably in recent decades. Um, There also needs to be a greater degree of emphasis on standoff or long-range cruise missiles. That could be launched from the land or from the air, or from the sea, from submarines, that are designed to interdict naval and air vessels. Um, that you know that kind of missile-intensive um, weapon system or weapons inventory, I think, is is really important. The United States is doing that to a certain degree, um, but I think even more of it needs to be done. Um, You probably don't need as much tactical aircraft forward deployed as we currently have in the theater. Um, Tactical meaning sort of a lighter aircraft and sort of for air-to-air combat. uh, That is not as important as having these missile capabilities um, and dispersal and resilience. Uh, You have to have a greater stress on the logistics, uh, the hardening of your logistics train. Um, in the event of a conflict. I mean, these are all very specific things that could could mean a lot uh, in a conflict and allow the United States to avoid having to attack targets on the Chinese uh, mainland and also being able to incrementally increase um, one's one's, uh, response to the Chinese. Um, So, Japan itself also needs to be doing more, but with still limited and and somewhat restrained capabilities, it is going to be spending more on its defense but it it does need to do to do more and particularly in support of a basing in in Japan, but also in terms of its own capabilities to support the United States. Um, of course, there's a question as to how and under what conditions Japan would be all in with the United States and supporting a conflict with China over Taiwan. Um, I don't think we're ever going to be in a position, well, I shouldn't say ever, but not in any near term where Japan is going to give an upfront commitment to be all in with any US decision to engage in conflict with with China, even if Japan has not been targeted by China. Um, That remains a real issue in in the US-Japan relationship. And um, probably the United States is not going to get a clear commitment from the Japanese and probably shouldn't push for that, um, but you want to have as much uh, reassurance as you, could, as you can get. Um, so it's, that's the main thrust of it. But an essential element of all of this has to also be uh, diplomatic assurances and confidence-building measures, uh, particularly vis-a-vis Taiwan that can reduce the likelihood that you're going to get into a conflict in the first place. Um, the The primary primary uh, objective of U.S. policy should not be how do we win a war with China, which seems to be on the minds of almost everybody in Washington. Endless articles written about fighting a war with China, how to beat China in a Taiwan war, um, all about you know, do we have enough of this? Do we have enough of that? We need to double down on this. It's all measured in very narrow military bombs and bullets terms and that fundamentally misunderstands the nature of the problem the problem with taiwan is political the problem has to do with having adequate levels of deterrence alongside with credible levels of reassurance to the chinese that the united states is not destined to try to separate taiwan from china or to, or to sustain uh, that le- level of, of current separation indefinitely. Um, that that really needs to be a priority for the United States to reassure the Chinese that that is not in the American uh, strategic objectives. And by the same token, the Chinese need to assure the United States much more credibly that, that it also it still continues to seek peaceful unification as a priority. The Chinese will never Um, never disavow the possibility of use of force because it relates, in their view, to their exercise of sovereignty. Uh, Taiwan is seen as part of Chinese sovereign territory. No state recognizes limits on its ability to exercise control, including military control over sovereign territory. So as a principle, the Chinese will never disavow the use of military force. However, their primary emphasis has been for decades now to seek a peaceful unification Or peaceful resolution of the problem, and they need to be more credible in in committing themselves to that, and and not having any kind of timeline or deadline for resolving the Taiwan issue. They need to have patience, and they need to be able to convincingly convey that patience, and be willing to reduce their military activities around Taiwan, if and as uh, tensions abate in the area. So you need to have a mutual degree of assurance. On the part of the United States and China. That kind of a CBM, that kind of assurance is essential as the larger framework within which this active denial force posture would would operate. And many people in Washington completely reject or ignore this. They just double down on the military side. They just view the problem as a military problem. They don't see it as a political issue that needs to be controlled. Um, They don't see the importance, the critical importance, of diplomatic engagement with the Chinese on this to get some kind of mutual understanding about restraints on both sides. There's, there, it's just being defined in military terms. And that is dangerous because it tends to convey that war is almost inevitable, which it isn't.
0: So I, I want to sort of ask a follow up to that as the final question. Um, discussions of strategy are, are often somewhat insulated from politics. And it seems to me that politics are, are part of the problem here in, in the sense that um, it sells politically to be a hawk on China. And there are internal domestic dynamics on the other side, inside China, that might encourage um, the the less cooperative instincts um, uh, towards uh, the United States. and And so I guess my question is, Uh, How do we get around the politics? Right now, the hawkish view gets a leg up in the marketplace of ideas because the politics enable that. So if strategy is going to lead and not politics leading strategy, um, it's not really a question. I'm just kind of presenting a problem that I see. (laughs) And What do you think about that?
1: (laughs) Well, it is a problem. I mean, we we are increasingly in the United States. uh, Again, I don't want to ignore the Chinese role in this because there is a role. But Increasingly, in in the United States, we're just moving down this pathway to assuming that the Chinese are this implacable existential threat to all we hold dear in so many different areas. Uh, Almost all aspects of our relationship with the Chinese have now been, to use the much overused term, securitized. Everything is now being viewed through a national security lens. Um, the Chinese are a, a, an actual or a potential threat in almost every area you can think of. And, and therefore, the, the and those threats are near existential, if not existential. And therefore, the, the only logical response for the United States is to treat China as this kind of implacable existential threat and, and, and move accordingly, which means contain, undermine, weaken. And yet U.S. policy says, you know, we don't want that. Um, we we want to have a policy that is balanced um we want to have a policy that 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 does include significant areas of of cooperation with the Chinese even though we don't see much evidence of a really concerted effort on the part of the u s government to get there and of course they'll say it's because the Chinese are not cooperating um but I think in order to try to overcome this kind of negative dynamic, there just has to be a a a convincing argument out there that based on facts, based on a dispassionate view of what has and has not happened, what the Chinese have said and have not said, based on the the contingent nature of a lot of the things that China says and does, there has to be a clear definition there of the limits of the threat to which China poses to the United States. And the cost for the United States of assuming otherwise, the cost for the United States of adopting these totalistic, um, you know, worst case, zero-sum approaches to dealing with China, um, the costs are significant, uh, both in terms of the danger of conflict and in terms of the demands it places on resources for, for the United States and the degree to which it heightens insecurity and paranoia within American society. And you have this movement towards ferreting out uh, malicious Chinese influence activities. Such activities certainly go on. They're certainly there. I think it is another area where they are inflated in terms of the threat they actually pose to American society. But people have got to understand that there are limits Um, to these types of threats, and that you cannot remove them entirely, um, but you can improve them and reduce the propensity uh, for those threats to really have serious consequences by adopting a more moderate, more balanced, more reality-based assessment of what China is, the threat it poses, and I dare say, the opportunities it poses and presents for the United States if you have a good, constructive, workable relationship with the Chinese. Now, this requires uh, stepping back from the kind of paranoia and insecurity and hyper threat inflation that we that is so basic to the American political discourse now. And there needs to be leaders stepping forward with the courage to be able to take on these extremist views, to be able to say, Uh, categorically, that these do not serve American interests, that the United States needs to adopt a genuinely balanced, constructive policy in dealing with China without in any way ignoring or overlooking or pushing aside the concerns and threats that China does pose. But it does require a willingness to establish limits um, in, in, in how far you go In in trying to uh, counter China, because the consequences of this more worst case based totalistic zero sum are are much greater than the alternative um, kinds of uh, postures that you could adopt. So it's you know there's no easy answer to it, John. I mean, if I had the answer to it, you know, I mean, maybe I'd be wealthy. Who knows? But um, but you know there there's there's just no there's no there's no simple easy answer to it. It requires it requires a as i said courageous leaders which we have very few to stand up and and really speak truth to power in this case and and i and to say this to the chinese as well i mean the chinese themselves of course are are deeply involved in a system now that that tends to validate some of the worst case fears and assumptions of people in the united states by looking at Xi Jinping and his emphasis on party controls and ideology. I mean, this, this is a throwback in some ways to earlier periods of, of Chinese history and politics that has not served China well. And the United States needs to also encourage Chinese to um, be willing to, in various ways, resist, uh, if not speak out openly, um, about the dangers involved in China's own behavior. Um, this is a mutual process, and and but there needs to be engagement on this. And there needs to be meaningful, sustained engagement between the leaders on both sides and not these one-off episodic, here we have a meeting, but with Wang Yi and Jake Sullivan, and that occurs. And then months pass, and then another meeting might occur. And oh, Blinken might go to China, but then he's not going to go to China because a balloon incident occurs. So you have all of this constant buffeting around, and it's political po- and domestic politics plays a huge role in this, especially in the United States, uh, and I think causes the Biden administration to be much less, um, much less forthrighted and, and much less um, reflective of what it's saying in its actions.
0: Okay, well, um, here's to courage, to saving us <laughs> from World War III. Michael Swain, thanks for taking the time today.
1: You're very welcome. Thank you, John.